Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to find yourself strapped to a giant rocket? Or to look back on Earth from outer space? This month, Helen Keane is in conversation with spaceman Mike Massimino as he looks back on his remarkable 18-year career as a NASA astronaut. Wow, this is very impressive. Ah. Thank you very much for coming. What a, what a pleasure. Thank you. It's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I introduced you twice as well. It was, very, very, it was very slick. Quite an honor to be here. <laughs> so, Mike, I wanted to start by asking you, I guess, going back to the very beginning. I'm reading your book at the moment. I'm very much enjoying it. And the first Thank section you. I noticed uh, was called, uh, very, very spaciously, I Want to be Spider-Man. Yes. Uh, yes. And um, I wonder if you could explain a little bit maybe about that title and also about your own experience of coming from just an ordinary family and your sort of inspirations and what was sort of really powering your passion for space as a child. Um, so the, the Spider-Man reference, uh, and Spider-Man, I guess, mainly hangs out in New York City, but we know yeah. about him here in London as yeah, well. Yeah, we, we, we have Spider-Man. All right. So um, I, what, what I was uh, inspired, uh, impressed, um, uh, totally overwhelmed by the moon landing. I was six years old, and uh, the lead up to that for, I guess it was a big deal over here as well. Mm, everyone yeah, knew it was, we don't you it. remember? We, yeah. we, so everyone who was alive at that time remembers what was happening, and um, even the lead up to it, the months before Apollo 8 first orbit the moon, I remember that happening sort of, Apollo 10, I remember the images, they flew low to the moon but did not, uh, did not land. And then the build-up to Apollo 11 and the summer of 69 um, was, uh, w w was really a big deal, but really caught my imagination. And watching on a TV set and then going out in the front yard and looking up at the moon, I, I just, you know, I thought this was unbelievable. And everyone did at mm. that time. Everyone you were with your excited. family watching it. I was with my yeah. family watching this on our black and white uh, family television in the living room on Long Island where I grew up, uh, you know, the s suburbs of, uh, of New York City. And uh, it was important, I think, to everybody that this happened. But for me, it, it really made an impression. I don't know mm. if it was the age, if that was whatever, whatever I saw on TV that week was going to affect me for the rest of my life. I don't know what it was, but something really uh, grabbed me and, um, and never let go. And uh, for, you know, for a while, it's, that's all I could, could think about was being an astronaut. I used to... I dressed up, uh, I don't know if they were showing pictures here earlier, did they get those up? But the picture in the book you'll see is, is uh, if you look in the book, is me dressed up as, a, as an astronaut with a converted elephant costume from the first grade play. <laughs> my, mother, my mother converted it to an elephant costume. And, I, and there's a picture of me with my Snoopy. I had an astronaut Snoopy. You, you took the trunk off, I'm assuming. The, no, the trunk, yeah, no, it was, the, yeah. the, it was ears. There was no oh, trunk. I had ears, I traded in the ears for a plastic jet fighter helmet. So I was wearing that, yeah, and I had my, my Snoopy, and um, that was uh, that was my that was what I used to do. I'd run around the backyard with Snoopy playing astronaut. So once uh, once I got to the third grade, it just it just fell into the category of ridiculous. I just realized that there was I, I felt there was no way I could do that. That um, you know, being an astronaut was as much chance of of being Spider Man. You know, how do you do that? And uh, they were, you know, these were fearless test pilots, and I was not a fearless test pilot. I still am not. Uh, I'm, I'm a scared of heights, and I don't like going very fast either. Which is, <laughs> consider my occupation might sound strange, but uh, that's the way I was. I was a nearsighted, skinny kid, and you know, a little awkward, and 
I just I didn't see any way to, to do that. So it just, it just went into the category of ridiculous, ridiculous careers like being a superhero, and I kind of forgot about it. Because mm. I, I guess actually that is an experience for a lot of astronauts that they come from military families, and so there is a kind of direct route, but your route was I, I, a no, very well, different. Well, the route, truth of it is, there really isn't any direct route no. to it. And yeah. even back then, I mean, even for those, back then the, the, uh, the astronauts were primarily military mm. test pilots or former military yeah. test pilots. Neil Armstrong walked in was actually a civilian, but he was a military test pilot and then converted to a civilian mm. test pilot, still worked at Edwards Air Force Base when he was selected. So all of the test, all of the first groups of astronauts were military test mm. pilots. There was a group of scientist astronauts that were picked in the 1960s. And the only one I, that I know of out of that group that flew was, was Harrison Schmidt. Yeah. Um, he was, and he was added, more, they swapped him out, they swapped out the crews of Apollo 17, because it was supposed to be Apollo 18, 19, and 20, and they canceled those last three Apollo flights toward mm -hmm. the end, we just, you know, they lost the will funding to do this, um, so they canceled those last three Apollo missions, and so Apollo 17 was going to be the last, and they put, they switched the crews out so that Harrison Schmidt had a chance to go, and so, because they wanted a geologist. Mm -hmm on one of the, at least one geologist, and they got Harrison Schmidt on that last flight. He was the last person to set foot on them, the 12th person, person to do that. And, but uh, there were some other scientists and medical doctors and so on that were there, and uh, those guys uh, hung around in, for, the, for Skylab, some of them flew on Skylab, and some of them flew on the shuttle. They didn't hang around a long time to fly because there was a bit of a gap. But when the shuttle program happened, it opened up the doors for lots of people. Uh, you know, this is, of course, the American program I'm talking mm. about. But, but what it did was is that it opened the doors for people of color. The first mm. people of color were selected. Um, first women. Women. The first mm. women, Sally Ride. There was yeah. five women in that class. Mm. Uh, it's one of Shannon Lucid as well. Uh, ended up being a record holder for most. She ended up spending uh, over six months on the space station Mir. Yeah. Uh, I got to work with her as a Capcom terrific lady. She just left NASA just a few years ago. But there were these... You know, these, these so now there's women. Yeah, yeah and, it, and, and than, yeah. When, when I got to college, I still wasn't thinking about being an astronaut. I didn't mm -hmm. really think about working for NASA. I mean, it wasn't like there was, you know, there was like NASA in the culture mm -hmm. where I grew up, and even, you know, science or engineering was even a bit of a stretch, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, it wasn't anything I really thought about. And I wanted to be an engineer because I like math and science, that's why I studied engineering. But I didn't really think of the space program. I thought I would just get a job somewhere in New York, which is what I did. Yes. I ended up working for IBM, big computer company in Manhattan, and computing, I went and moved back with my parents after college and was commuting into the city. And what I noticed was uh, that I started, I started, when I was walking by like a newsstand at Penn Station, I would, if there was an article about the space program, and this was in the early 80s now, or mid 80s by this point, the shuttle was, was flying. And these stories started coming out mm. about some of the people, like Sally Ride mm. being the first woman to fly in space. And, and uh, and I remember reading about these people, and I started realizing that they weren't just the military test pilots anymore, and their backgrounds were almost sort of similar to mine, mm. and that they were engineers, and, and they got advanced degrees, and so on. And so it, it seemed to me that I wanted, I wanted to be a part of it. I really mm. still loved the space program, and that, and I saw, this, I saw The Right Stuff, the movie The yes, Right Stuff. Yes, I was going to come on to ask Came you out when that. I was a senior, and The Right Stuff really got me thinking again about what, seeing that movie you know, my senior year, so this was in January of 1984, mm. right before I graduated from college, that rekindled it. And, and then I noticed, just noticed that I couldn't get it out of my mind anymore. It was all mm. I thought about, like when I was a little kid, and I needed to do something about it. And so I had an opportunity to go to graduate school at MIT. And that was the first major step forward that I took toward seriously trying to uh, 
become an astronaut. Mm. Yeah, because I think, I suppose, so you overcame the sense, because I think you talk a bit in the book about mm -hmm. how people in your family, everybody lived in the same place, people worked Yeah, everyone lived, you know, the idea, you weren't, you know, it was a big deal to go to the Bronx. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the Bronx, <laughs> but, but the Bronx involved going over a bridge. Yeah. And it was like, oh, how are we gonna, you know, we gotta go over the bridge, you know, this is a, that was a big deal. Brooklyn was another issue. And you, you know, going, we didn't want to all go to Brooklyn. Yeah. That was a big. We may, we more or less hung around the block. Yeah. You know, we didn't really go anywhere. My uncle, my uncle Frank lived across the street. Uncle Tony was around the corner. The furthest away, my uncle Romeo was ten minutes away. That was a bigger. So everyone was always around. There was no reason to go anywhere. You had all the food you wanted. Why did, why did you have to go anywhere? <laughs> Running water in a bathroom. What else do you want? Watch television. Be quiet. It was, you know, we just hung around. You know, no one really didn't go anywhere. I never, you know, I never went on a plane ride until I was in college and uh, went with my family. My sister was living out in California. We went on that trip and then, and then go on a plane again for another couple of years until I was out of college. So, no, we didn't really go anywhere, you know, and, uh, and we didn't really think about what else was out there. And I was pretty content to hang around Long Island and New York City was about the extent of it uh, when I went to college and in, and in where I was going to work. And I figured that was, that was going to be it. And mm -hmm. then... And then I was faced with the, with, the, with the fact that if I really wanted to pursue this astronaut dream, I was going to have to move around a little bit. I was going to have to go yeah. somewhere else. They weren't going to launch me from my backyard. I could play, pretend with Snoopy, but, you know, that yeah. would have been a little silly at age 25. So, I had a, so I, MIT was, for that, I guess, that first step away from New York, believe it or mm. not. Uh, and that was it. Yeah, and, that, and then from there, other things started happening that took me in different places around the country mm. and, and other places that eventually led me to, to, to the astronaut program. So that was something I wanted to talk a little bit about, your time um, studying for a PhD and also your time at MIT, because you're very honest in the book that it wasn't all plain sailing, was it? it wasn't no, it no, was a disaster. Really? Yeah, yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was, to it was total craziness, yeah. yeah. No, it's funny, something like you can read off my degrees, but really, there's, they, they don't, you know, they don't, they can say like, you know, not, you know, they might say you've got a, you know, a bachelor's degree mm. with honors, or something, but they don't say you've got a bachelor's degree with agony, because that's really what happened. <laughs> it was a total agony, and you know, but that, that's, you know, even, even there I was, uh, even going back to, to, uh, to middle school or high school, it was, you know, school was always, was always challenging for mm. me. When I, uh, after I became an astronaut, uh, I was an astronaut for about two years, hadn't flown in space yet, um, but my elementary school was having a career day, right? My elementary school in Long Island, they invited me of to come course, visit. They invited you. Invited me, you know, yeah. astronaut career. Yeah. So, uh, or career week or something. I think they yeah. gave me my, a whole day or whatever, but <laughs> so to speak to all the students. And uh, so it was really nice, you know, they decorated the school and kids made rocket ships and stuff. It was great. And I had lunch and one of my teachers, a few of my teachers are still there. It was a while back. So uh, a few of my teachers are still there, including my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Oko was there. So, so they invited Mrs. Oko to have lunch with me. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, we had lunch together. And uh, she said that uh, her son, who was probably about 10 or 11 maybe at this time, said, you know, she said, I'm going to have lunch with one of, she said, I'm going to have lunch with one of my students, and he's an astronaut now. And, and so the kid says to, to his mother, Mrs. Oko, she says, well, he must have been really smart, right? And Mrs. Oko says, I don't think so. <laughs> she, told him, she said, she says, I'm sure he was bright, but if he was really smart, I would have remembered. So I guess, you know, Mrs. Oko has this list of smart kids in her head from all these years of teaching, and I wasn't one of them. You know, she's like, who? You know? So, uh, you know, I, she's, I'm sure he was bright. So she's not even sure I was bright, but she's like, I think, you know, I think he was. Yeah. Uh, but um, 
So I was never the brightest kid. Yeah, yeah, try to keep that. But but what she what she said she said she told him what she said was what I told him was you know I'm sure he was bright but if he was really smart I would have remembered but then she went on to add but that's not always what's important and that's only part of the equation right and and that's that's the truth of it there's a lot more to it there's I think to be successful to reach a goal in some ways maybe being too smart isn't such a good idea because you think too much. And you realize that it's impossible. You know, I, I kind of knew it was impossible, mm. but I think I wasn't smart enough to realize that, yeah, really, no kidding is impossible. <laughs> the odds are really against you. And so I, I, I kept trying. And uh, I, think, I think there's, in addition to being bright, which is always help, a help, but, but being able to persevere when things mm. get bad. Because eventually you're going to run into a wall, I think. Mm. I mean, there may be a few people that have spoken here centuries ago and throughout that are smart enough to get by without any trouble, right? But it's easier in those days. They, you know, those, yeah, Faraday and those, they probably didn't have too much trouble in school, I'm guessing, <laughs> Isaac Newman. But uh, I think for just about everyone else, eventually you run into a wall, meaning that you're going to find something that is really hard, mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, you're having trouble, and that's standing between you and what you want to do on the other side, mm -hmm. which might be graduate or, or get to the job you want or accomplish whatever. And that's not going to come down easy. It's mm. good if things go down easily. You know, mm. if you everything, you pass everything, you get all A's and you're mm. not having to work. That's a pretty good deal. But I've never had that situation happen. Mm. And um, through whether it was in, again, going back to early years and, and even junior high, high school, uh, Mrs. Oko's class apparently, and, uh, you know, college and graduate school for sure, um, especially in, in, you know, at Columbia, my third year at Columbia, my first year taking lots of engineering courses, didn't start off well, and I was able to recover and, and, and do well in the end. And then the same for, uh, for MIT. I failed mm. my qualifying exam for my PhD. And I didn't just fail. Like, I mm. really failed. I set a record, I think, for failure. Yeah. You know, they were like, wow, we've never seen anyone like this. You know? and they're like, uh, you know, they were curious about my, you know, my English skills. Could you read the questions? You know, they didn't know what. Did you understand what was? So I was pretty bad. And, uh, but you know, I, I was able to get a second chance, not because they wanted to give me a second chance, mm. but because it was kind of like sort of the deal. You got a second mm. chance. And, and uh, so I took advantage of that mm. and, uh, and was able to pass the second time. Yeah, um, I mean, so, yeah, it was always, I was always been in a situation where I need and, and call and help, you know, to, you know, to get mm. help from people. And as an astronaut as well, things weren't working out. I, I, I relied on people a lot, and I, and I tried to be someone that people could rely on. But I think it's important to know when you need help. Mm. For me, it was pretty, you know, it was pretty staring me in the face. And, and I, could, I, could, you know, I could try to solve problems on my own, but it didn't always work out as well. And having good friends and teaching assistants, teachers, professors, whoever, that were, that were there for me was very important you know, to, to, to get me through. Mm. Yeah, I think you talk a lot in the book about, you talk about sort of building a team of friends around you, yeah. and that's kind of, but you also talk about, and I thought it was very, very striking where you say that you go and talk to the guy, I think he was supervising your PhD, and he says, you know, maybe you're, he gives you the impression he thinks maybe you're not cut out for yeah, this. Yeah, you know, my, That's yeah. a real, I mean, that's a real setback moment, isn't it? Yeah, because my, uh, my, you know, what, what happened to me at MIT when I, when I failed that exam, and, and he knew I was kind of struggling. Mm. With you know, even before in the preparation, and you know, I was I was doing okay, but you know, I was not one of the one of the top students in his lab um, at that point, anyway. You we know, should I think say for anybody, MIT is like a very MIT is a yes. tough place. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's you know, an it's extremely difficult place. Yeah, to it's, it's get not an easy place to go to. Yeah, I, you know, I describe it as a smart kid Olympics because you mm -hmm. have students from all over the world 
representing their countries, and they're like the smartest mm. kids. And you know, and, the, and it's it's you know, there's no there is no one to bring down the, the class average. You know, everyone mm. is is bright. <laughs> you know, except for me, and I didn't want that to happen. Um, but uh, but no, yeah, it is. A, it, it was. A, it's a it's a very it's a very difficult place. What's what's interesting though is that uh, you know. My, so my advisor, Tom mm. Sheridan, who I write about in the book, mm. is a very kind man. He's a good family man, uh, just a you know mm. kind of like a, a fatherly image, mm. you know, like uh, not not a not a crazy ego-driven professor. No. He was a very kind man, um, lack of no ego at all, mm. and and very helpful. And uh, I liked him very much. And when he was telling me, you know, Mike, you know, you might want to think about this. Maybe mm. this isn't. Do you really want to try this again? Is this what you want to do? Maybe, maybe this isn't for you. Mm. And I understood what he said, and he, you know, I, I think he, there was there was some truth to what he was saying. But mm. at the same point, I realized that I, I still wanted to give it another mm. try and, and see what could happen. And and I passed the second time, mm. and um, and then you know there was a little bit of struggles with the research, but that but that ended up coming through. And what's funny is that uh, <laughs> as a Last year, I was invited back to MIT, and uh, they have uh, for commencement, mm -hmm. and they have this uh, hooding ceremony for their PhD program, mm -hmm. and uh, and I was invited to speak at it, and and I, I was wondering if they took a look at my transcript before they invited me back, <laughs> but no, I did fine. But what's curious is after that low blows and almost not making it through, I was able to uh, to get through there, and and now since. I think it's, you know, I've been on the Big Bang Theory that they show that here. Mm. I, think the, I think the students voted on who they wanted to speak, and they chose me, I think not so much for the astronaut stuff, but because they, they wanted to hear about the Big Bang Theory, <laughs> about what it's like to be on that show, which is a popular show in the U.S., yeah, I think. Yeah, it's popular Because so, um, I've done a few uh, cameo appearances on that show. But, uh, you know, it's funny because after, you know, after, that, after that experience, I never thought I'd ever be asked back to MIT for, <laughs> for anything. But I've been back there a few times to, uh, to speak, and... Uh, and I'm so very close with my advisor. Mm. And so you can really turn a situation mm. around, I think, is the, the point of it. Um, you know, again, going back there and speaking during commencement at this PhD ceremony. And, and I told that story of you know, how, I, mm. how I failed and how it was a, one of the deans at the school, a guy by the name of Ike Colbert. I was, gonna, I was thinking of getting a lesser degree instead of mm. trying for the PhD. And I remember he called me up. And it wasn't easy to call people back then because we mm. didn't have cell phones. You know, you had answering machines if they worked, but it was different. But he found me. He tracked me down, and he said, what's going on, Mike? I hear you're thinking about, you know, not taking the exam again or going for, mm -hmm. a, you know, like trying to go for a lesser degree and not the Ph.D. And I go, well, I failed. He goes, yeah, yeah, I understand that. But you really need to think hard right now if you want to, if you don't want to go for the big brass mm -hmm. ring. I remember he, he that brass ring is, has a different connotation. But one of them is that MIT has this, the, the class ring you get is oh. a big brass ring. So we he, don't have that. Right? And I remember him talking to me about it, and he was like, you know, what do you have to lose, and so on. He's very encouraging. And I remember speaking to the students that day at, the, at this hooding ceremony for commencement that, you know, I was really helped by this person, and that that's part of it, I think. When you, get your, when you make it through and you get your doctorate from, from wherever you go to school, but I was telling, talking to the MIT students that you need to look behind you and try to help those people struggling behind you. Mm -hmm. And so various people throughout my life somehow reached out at the right time when I needed it or were there when I reached out and somehow struggled through all that but got through okay.
I think that really comes across actually in the book that as well as just being the story of, of your life and your mm -hmm. progression, there's also there, it does feel quite inspirational in places. It does feel like you're you know there is a, there are lessons to be learned from yeah, the things it, that you experienced. You know, something that was uh, was a, almost a bit surprising because I thought when we were going to write the book, when I started to write the book, uh, and um, and I have a co-writer Tanner, mm. Tanner Colby who helped me, and what I really thought the book was going to if you ask it just about anybody I work mm. with. They knew me, they were like, oh, this is going to be the funniest book in the world. It's just going to be jokes. It's just going to be Mike and his friends and shenanigans in space, yes. right? And, and that was going to be, it's going to be just going to be funny. Yeah. You think it's funny? I think that's a follow-up. Those space, are all yeah. serious. That's not, even a, yeah. that's not even a tip of the iceberg for the funny stuff. The funny stories, for whatever reason, really didn't make it into the book. <laughs> For a variety of that's reasons. That's the follow-up. What's that? That's the follow-up. Shenanigans that's a follow in space. Shenanigans in space or a funny thing happened to me on the way to my spaceship. Yeah. yeah, right. That's what I want to get my, because my funniest stories didn't make it. Yeah. And um, but what the book started to become after we were working on it together mm. for a while, it became more of a, about, a book about um, following your dreams and mm. not giving up. And that's what seems to resonate mm. with... Uh, with a lot of people. I, I speak at a lot of uh, high schools now on behalf of my job at Columbia. I speak to um, uh, students at Columbia. I, I, speak, I speak to whoever, you know, to different groups and parents and kids high, from you know, people who are going along that path and struggling and meeting adversity seem to identify with it. And I just got a, I just got a note from, from some, I don't even know who this person was out of the blue, wrote me an email. They just read the book. Mm. I, I think they were, they were a, like a, a MD, PhD student at Columbia. Said they wish they had it four years ago. They're going to recommend it to everyone in a PhD mm. program to read. And that's very gratifying. I did not really expect that because mm. uh, I thought as well it was just me doing poorly at stuff and <laughs> having to come back after, after you know, not doing well. But, but I think there is a strong point there, and that is um, what, what I've found. And I've, I've been lucky to, be, to meet a lot of interesting people. Mm and become friends with a lot of them, whether in sports or, or rock and roll or uh, you know, people, actors or scientists or astronauts, whoever, um, successful people mm -hmm. that are very successful in business, anything. And they're, they're, not, they're successful not because they never fail. Mm -hmm. It's not because they never failed and they had a straight path. It's because they never let failure stop them. Mm. Everyone is going to fail at some point mm. or, not, or do poorly or whatever that definition of disappointment. And either you're, you, you know, it's okay to have regret, I think, is okay. It's okay mm. to be disappointed. It's okay to feel regret. Maybe think about it for a while. But it's really important to get back up. Even though if there's, it seems like there's no hope, mm. you still have to get back up. And I think that's what the first part of the book yeah. has started to, uh, what it formed into is that, that sort of story. Mm. So, and then the second part was shenanigans. No, the second part's not shenanigans. The second part is how cool it is to be in space, yeah, more or less. And, yeah, and the experience of being an astronaut and all that. There's, mm. Shenanigans just didn't work no matter what I did. A couple of shenanigans. Yeah, are, couple, there's some funny stuff, bit. but yeah. But, not, not what I thought when I first sat down to write. Yeah. But one other thing, just to, not to keep dwelling on these, these sort of difficulties, Abby, something that I think, obviously, you talked about coming You're back. You're depressing from, me now. Yeah, I am. I'm like, no, another no. thing. Yeah. No, but something that you, when you were filling in your astronaut application form, for yes. a better word, uh, you kind of, uh, you had problems with your eyesight, but you thought yeah. cunningly, oh, yeah. cunningly you would leave the box blank and then maybe yes. no one at NASA would notice. Right. <laughs> well, what it said, this <laughs> is what... That didn't really work, did no. it? No. no. What it said was, write down your visual acuity if it's mm. known to you. Mm. And I was like, well, I'm not really sure what, I kind of knew it was bad. Yeah. But I didn't want to write really bad, I just left it <laughs> yeah. blank. They were looking for numbers, I don't know what it was, so I left it blank. 
and then I got a call from, uh, this is the first time I applied, and I got a call from the flight surgeon who was one of the, do the doctors were screening the, the applications, and they're like, what's this, this guy doesn't have any eyesight. So he called me up and I said, I don't know. He goes, well, find out your prescription at least and let me know. And so I, I called my eye doctor. I found my prescription was like minus four diopters in, in each eye, which was kind of equates to like minus 400, minus, you know, minus tw mm. uh, 2,400. You mm. know, instead of being 2020, yeah. you didn't have to be 2020. You had to, at that point, you needed to be 21 for admission yeah. specialists, not the... The test pilot uh, applicants needed to have 2020 uncorrected vision. Yeah. They needed to still be able to see. Yeah. All this has changed now, right? The, 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 yeah, the, the admission specialists, not so much. But they still wanted 2150 uncorrected acuity. Mm. And so when he saw that prescription, he was like, nah, there's no way. We're going to, you know, mm. you can't, we're going to have to pass, pass you by for this, for this selection. And uh, so I was like, well, is there anything I could do? And they did accept something that was called orthokeratology. They did not accept any of the surgeries back then. This is over 20 years ago. So like, now if you do any of that stuff, you're, you're, mm. you're disqualified for life. We don't mm. trust it. Like any of, I don't know if LASIK even existed. There was mm. some called, there was some called radiokeratonomy. Sure anybody's had it then? I don't know, there was, there was a, LASIK now is actually accepted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're stable for a while, but it's, so you can improve it. The whole vision thing went away a couple mm. years ago as a, as a real obstacle. Um, but there was, there was one guy who I don't mention in the book who, uh, who was the head of, I guess he was the head of flight medicine back then, who was kind of an old school guy and, you know, from the days when pilots needed to see really well, you know, you know when they didn't have instruments. <laughs> no, you know, back in the day, like back in World War I, the Red Baron's flying around, whoever, and he, ooh, there's my aunt, I'm gonna go yeah. get him. And whoever saw each other was gonna win. Yeah. The guy who saw the other guy first A's. had the A's advantage. Was important. You need yeah, to be able to yeah, see, because you didn't have it now, they have, you know, they yeah. have, you need to be able to play computer games in order to fly a jet, you know? But back then, so this guy was still living in the, you know, the, before the World War I, World War II days, and was saying, ah, I gotta see. And, and so, so many, a lot of people, even, even test pilots who had, who had, who came in there with what they thought was 2020 vision, ended up, uh, ended up getting DQ'd uh, because mm -hmm. they couldn't pass the NASA test for, mm -hmm. for various reasons. It was really stringent in, in the eyes, in the eye, eye exam part of it, and it, it's, it's relaxed a lot since. But back then it was, it was, it was rough. And he suggested this, not that he suggested, I asked him what I could do, and he said, well, there's something called orthokeratology. And I looked in the regulations, sort of, and it said that was okay, but you needed mm. to be stable for a while. But actually, so I had this orthokeratology, which had, then made me qualified. Mm. But then that's, that, that still wasn't, when I, when I finally, I, you know, I got rejected a few times mm. from NASA. So I got rejected twice, and then I came in a third time, a third time with an application, and I, and I came in for an interview. Mm. I got called in for an interview. So, um, you know, two outright rejections a couple years apart. Mm. Then a couple years later on my third application, they said, come in for an interview. At this point, I had this orthokeratology done. Orthokeratology was just taking a, a, a very hard contact lens mm. and putting it in your, in, in your eyeball so it would flatten your eyeball. Mm. And what that does, because all glasses do is bend the light correctly, mm. right? You know, light comes in and doesn't hit your retina correctly, and so you're either nearsighted or farsighted. If it hits it perfectly, then you tw you know, you're 20-20, mm. and that's what happens when you put glasses on. It bends the light so that it hits directly. Mm. And... And so what orthokeratology does was is it, it flattened the eye to change the, the lens so that the light would bend a little bit better and get you closer. But what that also does is flatten your eyeball, which, uh, which is a problem. They didn't like that because they, I came in for that interview. They said, you have a flat eyeball. And I go, yeah, well, I had orthokeratology. They're like, well, you, now you can't. So really, you know, it was a way to sort of get around the, 
you know, the, the requirement, but not really. And ultimately, I was medically disqualified uh, for, for my vision. And I knew that my uncorrected vision without this, this flat eyeball artificially was going to be around 2,400. And um, that wasn't close to what they were looking for. Uh, so I was out of luck, medically disqualified, you know, mm. not, not good. And uh, so that was pretty disappointing. I mean, when I failed my, my qualifying exam at, at MIT, for example, or when I didn't do well on an exam earlier, there was always, well, mm. okay, I got to buckle down and change. I can get help. Yeah. Like, what am I going to do with my eyeballs? You know, mm. I was talking to <laughs> my sister, who still has 20-20 vision, is, is older than I am, still sees really well. I remember at the time she says, oh, I wish I can give you my eyeball. You know, my sister was willing to trade me eyeballs, and I was like, oh, should have made that arrangement. That, yeah. We should have made that arrangement in heaven before we were born, maybe, you know. <laughs> but that's too late for that. And um, so, uh, and even then, if I would have gotten, if I could see miraculously better, still doesn't mean I would have gotten picked. Mm -hmm. You know, I still need to get through the whole selection. But uh, what I did was, is I started to, uh, I, do, I didn't have any choice. I couldn't do any of these surgical procedures. This orthokeratology didn't work. So it was nothing. And I remember thinking about it. I, I got disqualified on a Friday. We're thinking about it over a weekend. And I was like, the, the only thing, these, my eyes need to be better than they are. Mm. That was the only thing that was going to work. And I started looking into it a little bit, and I found out that there was vision training that, mm. that you could try. And it, it was successful. I spoke to a local uh, optometrist in Houston that had done it and, uh, with, with mainly little kids, because mm. little kids, I guess, are still, you know, they're still growing and forming whatever is going on in their heads. And they could, they could adjust that. But once mm. you get to like where I was in my early mm. 30s, it was, she thought it'd be kind of too late, but she said she'd be willing to try. Mm. And so that's all the, you know, that's all the mm. green light I needed. So I was like, yes, let's try. And I was able through these series of, of, uh, of exercises to, to get so I could kind of struggle through the, through mm. the eye chart and try to, and, and I for, you know, did this for a few months and I was able to get myself where I could read the eye chart a couple lines lower and mm. believe it or not, kind of get through, struggle through an eye exam. And so that's what, that's what I did. I, I was able to requalify mm. by just doing these exercises. So, so a will yeah. is a way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to the period where you are actually, you don't actually get appointed an astronaut immediately, do you? You are no. taken on as an astronaut candidate. That's right. Yes. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit so about when you first, well, yeah, when you first, You're not getting accepted to the astronaut mm. program. You're getting accepted to the astronaut candidate program. Mm. So you're an astronaut candidate, or as they affectionately call us, an ass can. We're called astronauts. <laughs> you're an ass can when you first arrive. And uh, it's affectionate, yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's not to be like, I really didn't care what they called me. Yeah. I was selected to be an astronaut, and, and you're very, very excited about that. So you start out as an ass can, astronaut candidate, go through that training program. And for me, it was really uh, quite a, we really changed my daily routine, you know, mm. instead of like going to work and, and sitting at a desk and talking to students, I was a professor at Georgia Tech right before, a Georgia Institute of Technology in the States before I was selected. And that was a certain, it was, you know, mm. professor kind of academic mm. life. And now we're gonna fly in high performance jets and went through water survival training and land survival training and parachute training. So I learned about the shuttle systems and working in simulators and flying in this, in this T-38 high performance jet training aircraft. And how is yeah, that wearing an oxygen yeah. mask and a helmet for real, you know, and not like I was playing in my backyard anymore. <laughs> and uh, it was it was quite a difference in my in my daily routine, I guess. Yeah, well, what an amazing experience. So. 
Yeah, but how is that from going from someone who doesn't like water and doesn't like heights? Yeah, I don't like the water neither. So water yeah. survival was a bit challenging. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, I, don't, I don't think I talk about this in the book, but I, I mean, I don't talk about this in the book. But um, when, he, when I got my letter, they get, you get a phone call and they mm. say, would you, you know, you, you're going to, we'd like to, you know, you've been selected, you're mm. going to be an astronaut. And I said, okay, great. And then, uh, and then they send you a letter, right? They send us a package, an information yeah. package, right? And, and they said, congratulations, and show up for work on this day, call this person about whatever, you know, this kind of thing. And then they said, uh, the second paragraph was, please practice your swimming skills, <laughs> right? Uh, because uh, it went to explain that we were going to be expected to pass a swim test in order to go to water survival training with the Navy. And then an even more difficult swim test in order to scuba dive in the neutral buoyancy lab. And this was, and I was already scuba qualified. I was mm. okay with, with equipment. Yeah. I didn't like the, you know, the man from Atlantis stuff, swimming, mm. swimming by, you know, without, without gear. But I could, you know, I was okay with, yeah. with scuba. But they didn't care about that either. They were, they were like, we don't, we, you, have to, you have to pass this other swim test to dive in the, in mm. the pool, which is much harder than any swim test that you would have to do for a regular scuba license. And I couldn't believe this because I did not like the water at all. I learned mm. to scuba dive sort of as a way to overcome my fear of the water. Mm. Um, but I did not like swimming. I mm. never liked the water when I was a kid because I was so skinny when I was a kid that I was always freezing in the water in New mm. York. I hated it. You know, it was terrible. <laughs> and I didn't like going under the water. You can't breathe. I didn't like this. I didn't yeah. see any reason to go in the water. If you look, if you look down the, the, the you know, if you want to get off Long Island, where I was growing up, there were bridges to do that in a tunnel. We had a tunnel. And if you look down the East River, you see tunnels, and you don't see people swimming. You see, people, and you see bridges and tunnels. You know, there's no reason to go in the water. I don't understand. So I never, I, never, I never saw any reason to go in the water. And now this thing, I've always avoided it. You know, if I, like, I was a kid going to a pool party, I would like, kind of fake like I was having fun in the water. You know, I would never really go in. You know, I'd kind of sit on the side, and I'm having fun. I didn't like it. And now I had to go through this water survival stuff. So. Um, what was your question? Because now <laughs> I'm traumatized now. What was it like? It was uh, you were saying I had to do some different things. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. So I wasn't used to that. So I had to overcome that, uh, and uh, that was okay. Mm. You know, I just had to practice a lot and uh, take it step by step, and ended up being all right with that. You know, I wasn't the strongest swimmer, but I was able to learn. Mm. So I practiced and got help, and was able to get through that as well. Um, and then yeah, the other the other stuff. You know, I wasn't a thrill seeker like some astronauts are mm. thrills. I don't, I don't, I don't like thrills. Mm. No good. So I, I never, you know, some of my astronauts, with my friend Kent Rominger, who's uh, I talk about in the book a little bit, but I saw him a couple of days ago. He lives in, in Salt Lake City now. And um, he's a thrill seeker. Mm. You know, he was a, you know, a, a, a fighter pilot off an aircraft, flying off aircraft carriers with the Navy, became mm. a test pilot. But he also likes skydiving and hand gliding. And I like snow skiing, but he does like extreme snow skiing and mm. water skiing. He's a thrill seeker, mm. you know? Mm. Uh, he likes driving a car fast and motorcycles. And I'm like, nah, I'd rather stay home and watch television, mm. you know, given a choice. <laughs> so that sort of thrill-seeking thrill kind of stuff I had, to, mm. I had to get used to as well. But, but it, it was, you know, to me, it was just sort of a little discomfort that I had to get used to. Mm. And, um, and I found out that it was, it was okay. Mm. You know, it's kind of just another challenge. And, uh, and the, the, the benefit of it was getting a chance to fly in space or spacewalk or fly in these, these jets, uh, which I really enjoyed. That mm. I did not have any problem with. Flying in the airplane was great. The spacewalking, I really enjoyed that training. 
So it's just like these initials. Like, you, know, you have to go through school to get to what you want to do. And, and I guess that's the way it was for me with the astronaut training. You had mm -hmm. to do these, for me, unpleasant things to go through these survival schools and so on, which I was not, uh, not inclined to do unless mm -hmm. I was forced. But being forced to do it, I, I found like it was, I was able to get through it and, and, and enjoy the training that was on the other side of it. Mm. And so all this time, you're obviously, you're being assessed, and people are deciding, as you're doing this training, who is going to, who is going to be the next, who's going to be called as an astronaut, who is going to be appointed. So is it very, I was going to ask you, is it very competitive? No, no it's not. It's not. It's not. No, once you, I mean, uh, once you get, even through the interview process, it's not, mm. I think everyone's, the kind of people there are, are, are pretty grateful to get mm. to that point. I was pretty happy to get to the interview part of it, where you're a finalist to, mm. to do this job. And um, it really is not, you know, it's not a, um, it's competitive from the standpoint that people want to do well. Mm. But really, it's, it's, it's a different situation. The, and, th and this is where who you select, I think, is important. Mm. Um, because the only way the, the, the mission is going to be successful or the team is going to be successful is if everyone helps each other. Mm. And uh, if someone has a weakness, you don't exploit it. You try to help that person, and um, and that's that's the way it, that's the way it is. And there were some things that I was able to help people with, and there were a lot of things that I needed help with, where I got help from my friends. And it generally was us helping each other. It was my astronaut, my fellow ast astronaut candidates, mm -hmm. and I. And um, it was pretty much from the beginning with the swim test that I was mm -hmm. afraid of. Um, when we first got there, we had a, a, a astronaut who was hadn't flown. Um, Jeff Ashby, he was in the class, he was a Navy pilot who was in the class ahead of us. And he was kind of in charge of us as our sponsor to help us kind of mm. as a, you know, as show us the way of going through our astronaut training. And he said, uh, you guys have the swim test next week, right? It was toward the end of our first week. Next, and I'm like dreading this swim test. And he, he said, uh, who, here's a, who here's a weak swimmer? And he goes, uh, you know, don't, don't lie, right? So I sheepishly raised my hand with a few other people. And he said, who are, who are the strong swimmers? And we had a couple Navy divers mm. in, the, in the school, you know, and then some other, some other people raised their hand. He goes, okay, because we're going we're gonna to end ending the day, but the good swimmers and the poor swimmers stay. You're going to get to know each other, and you're going to get together over the weekend, and the strong swimmers are going to help the weak swimmers prepare for that test because everyone's going to pass that test next week. Mm. And that was the end of it. And that's what we did. And we, mm. we stayed around, and we practiced over the, over the weekend. And we got to the pool that next week, and uh, everybody passed. And that, that, was the, that was the story. There wasn't any of this, mm. oh, you can't swim. You're not gonna. There was like, no, no, either we're all going to pass or no one's going to pass. That's the way it's going to be. Mm. And that's, that's sort of a sense of team, that teamwork um, was, was, was a new a kind of a new concept. I mean, I knew mm. about teamwork, mm. but this, at that level, you know, I knew, you mm. know, being a teamwork is important. Um, I experienced that on sports teams and other things throughout my life, but this was a little bit different. This mm. was like our success is, is a team success. Our failure is a team failure. We, you don't point fingers. And, and it's, I think when I, when I, when I, even when I watch some sports teams sometimes, you know, it's easy when you win, everyone to be happy, but it's when you lose. What, what, how do you react? Do you blame mm. it on the person that made the mistake at the end that mm. is glaring that everyone remembers, or do you treat it that, no, we all lost? And you see it handled different ways. I think a true team handles the difficulties together. 
I think it's easy to handle the successes, mm. but it's when you when you're faced with failure, how did you react then? And so just, just a little bit, so you, but you do, you become an astronaut and you do, do go into space. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes, I get through all that. You get through all that. Yeah. So, I mean, how did that Despite feel? myself. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, it was great. It was, uh, and I, I remember there was, even uh, in, my, in my experiences, uh, in my, on my flights, getting a chance to, uh, to view the planet, as extraordinary as that was, I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> You know, all that hard work and sticking mm. to it and, and not, not giving up, uh, being able to, to, to be out there on a spacewalk. I was just, you know, it hit me at one point uh, how, how fortunate I was that, that I got to that, to that point. Um, and there's a lot of good fortune. You know, mm. you could control as much as you want or as much as you can, you know, to, to make yourself a good candidate and keep yourself healthy and do the best you can for yourself mm. to, to be, to be a, a good candidate. And, and get selected, but really it comes, there's a, there's a degree of luck in there too. So there's good fortune that plays a role here as well. And, and you know, it, 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 it's hit me many times, but it, it really, I think, hit a focus point uh, during my, my space flight, during my first spacewalk, just being out there, you know, looking down at the space shuttle and then at the earth and realizing that, you know, all that all that hard work and sticking to it and not giving up was, uh, was worth it. Thank, thank goodness mm. I didn't, I didn't let, let go. Mm. And you were, um, on both your missions actually, you were involved with working on the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, both of my missions were to Hubble and I got to spacewalk on both those missions yeah. up, up there, a magnificent instrument. So uh, there was, those are just great missions to be on. Any space mission would, is a good mission, but particularly the Hubble missions because there's so much uh, spacewalking on those missions. And what you're working on, the, the, the instrument, the, te the telescope is such a, amazing instrument because it's, it's above the atmosphere so it doesn't, mm. it sees directly into space. So it's kind of as if, if you look up at the sun from a, if you're in a pool looking up through the water at the mm. sun, it looks blurry. And if you get out of the pool, out of the water, now you're looking directly mm. at the sun, it looks much clearer. That's kind of what the atmosphere does to our vision of the stars, mm. of the universe. And by getting the telescope above the, the atmosphere, it sees directly into the sky, into the universe. You can see the stars as, as perfect points of light. Your eyeball sees it as well, and mm. you're up there, twinkle, twinkle, little star was written mm. by someone on Earth. Yes. It wasn't written by anyone in space, because in space, the stars don't twinkle. No. Um, and the, the Hubble is a magnificent engineering machine. It's able to point very accurately. Uh, it's as if you could have a, have a, a laser, I'm gonna use a U United States reference, I apologize, but being in Washington, D.C. on the Washington Monument, mm. you could hit a dime on the Empire State Building in mm. New York City. That's how accurate this the telescope is. About mm. 250 miles. How many kilometers is that? It's about uh, miles 400 kilometers it? away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how accurate it can. Yeah. Um, it's able to, uh, to to point and traveling at 17,500 miles mm. an hour and point that accurately is 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 miraculous. Mm. And then it, it it has these optics and the instruments inside of it that can return this data, images and data about what it's what it's looking at. Mm. To the, to the astronomers on the ground. And it mm -hmm. just makes these incredible discoveries. It, just recently, a, a few weeks ago, it, uh, evidence of water on Europa, planet mm -hmm. of Jupiter, was discovered by Hubble just a few weeks ago. And uh, more recently, there are 10 times as many galaxies in the universe than we thought yeah. there was. Yes. Can you imagine? How do we yeah. miss all of them? <laughs> like, what is, I mean, it's not like, hey, we found a couple extra ones. But yeah. we, uh, oh, there's 90% more than we thought. There's 10 times we need. You know, and yeah. so 
I thought we knew what we were doing, you know, and now, jeez, <laughs> we don't know anything. So the telescope is, is still returning some great science. So to be a part of that team was really special. Mm. And uh, to get to do that on my first flight was, was more than I could ever even uh, dream of asking for. So. And also that you're lucky. working, I suppose, on an instrument where the pictures are being, being back. I remember, I'm sure lots of you remember sort of the early mm -hmm. 2000 things where, you know, every time there'd be a beautiful picture on the front page of every paper yes. in the world that was coming from Hubble. So right. it was really direct public engagement. Yeah, guess, it shows world. everyone yeah. can appreciate it. Yeah. You know, you can, you can try to uh, understand complicated principles mm. and you're like, well, I don't know. Mm. But you can look at the, the image of, of and Hubble see how beautiful. and yeah. see how beautiful. Everyone can appreciate it. Mm. Um, That's why not. Even if you're not, you know, you're not an astronomer. And astronomy is one of these, um, there's a science that's available to everybody. Mm. But let's just go outside and look up and you can see the stars and the moon and, and think about where we are. Mm. And, uh, and that, there's not many other sciences that are, that are mm. like that, in, in my opinion anyway. It's something mm. that everyone is kind of, one, I think everyone at some point wonders about it, how mm. it works and what, who, where are we and what else is out there and how beautiful the night sky can be and so on. And Hubble brings all that to us uh, and all the, the beauty of the universe in addition to all the, the data and, and, and telling us things that are, that are important to understand where we're from, mm. uh, interesting facts mm. and discoveries. And, and just, it, 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 only, it doesn't just make, answer questions, it, it forms questions. It, it discovers things that we don't understand, like, wow, there are 10 times as many galaxies as we thought. We didn't know to ask that, you know, we didn't know that. But, but the Hubble gives us this information that, that changes the way we think about things. Mm. Yeah, I think that's quite a journey as well for you from being someone, I think you said when you were a kid, you didn't know anybody with a telescope. and then No, I didn't know anyone. Space, yeah. The biggest telescope. I didn't even know anyone with binoculars. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. We had a magnifying glass, it was a big deal. We didn't have anything. So I was like, wow, you know, so yeah, so now I'm working on the, this magnificent telescope. Yeah. Know. So I just wanted to, we're going to go to audience questions very, very shortly, but I just wanted to ask us before we do that, just to ask you a little bit about the future of. Mm -hmm. NASA and the future experience of astronauts, because you obviously made two missions into space. That's that's going to become increasingly rare. Is that is that would that be true to say? Um, two was about kind of I guess the average of where my generation mm. was. We had a couple. A lot of it is timing, mm. and um, some of the astronauts picked before me. Uh, John Grunsfeld had four space uh, five space flights mm. total. A fellow that I flew with, Scott Altman, was picked before I was had had four. Some of the people behind me have only had one, yeah. and they're still hoping for a second one uh, there. So a lot of it was the timing of when mm. you were, when you were selected. I think uh, right now, if you if you look at the number of spots um, that that are available, mm. we don't have the shuttle flying anymore, mm. right? So exactly. the shuttle was able to take seven astronauts into space uh, about to say five times a year. So thirty-five uh, U.S. and our partner mm. uh, countries like. The UK, of mm. course, and the European Space Agency countries, Japan uh, and uh, Canada, were able to, to get 35 people mm. into space a year. Now, the way it works is we're flying on a Soyuz, mm. and um, there, are, there are three seats on a Soyuz, and there are four Soyuz launches a year. So that makes 12 seats. Mm. Half of those seats are for Russians, yeah. for the cosmonauts. So that leaves six for the Americans and our partner countries. So... There's four, so out of those six, out of those uh, six seats, uh, four of them are U.S. seats, and the other mm. two are our partner. Like, mm. for example, Tim, Tim Peake, Peake. My, mm. my friend Tim Peake, great guy. Everyone here loves Tim Peake, right? You know, Tim Peake, <laughs> just awesome guy, just terrific. Mm. Uh, 
send us more of those guys. <laughs> it was just, just awesome guy. One of the nicest people I've ever met, just terrific. Um, so people, you know, astronauts from, from the UK like Tim mm. or from, you know, a Japanese astronaut or Italian or whatever, get those seats. So there's only four Americans a year going into space, six from the US mm. and our partners, as opposed to sending like 35 a year. So the demand has mm. come right down, way down. But I think what's gonna happen on the, the NASA end there's gonna be an increase coming. As soon as we mm. can get, there are two companies, Boeing and SpaceX, that are mm. working on something called Commercial Crew. They're building spaceships kind of in a partnership with NASA, a little bit of a different model. So it's not NASA with a contract, mm. working with a contractor. They had ideas for spaceships that they're gonna put some of their money in. Mm. NASA's gonna help, and then they're gonna use that to go to the space station and fly astronauts to the space station. So once that gets going, which is probably gonna be in about two years or so, the demand for astronauts is gonna go up. You're always mm. gonna have a few, but the numbers have started to go down. The last selection we had, it's gonna be four years in between selections. We had a 2013 selection. Mm. They only selected eight astronauts mm. in. They're gonna select another one coming up, another selection in 2017. I think it's gonna be a mm. larger number, but I think the numbers are gonna start going up again. When mm. I was selected, there were 35 mm. Americans selected and nine international astronauts in wow. my class. Uh, non-US yeah. astronauts, so it's 44 of us, so it's a huge class. Yeah. That's the largest class, mm. and that's when we were flying the shuttle. So I think now we kind of are in a little bit of a ramp down, but I think the ramp up's gonna go. But I think that that's gonna be dwarfed by the privatization. Mm. Once, we get, uh, once we get private, this privatization with companies like, like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and uh, Blue Origin, which mm. is another company, and there are other ones, but those are the mm. three that I think are, are gonna be the, one of them is going to be the first, and I think the yes. other. I think they're all three going to be successful, of flying astronauts, scientists, and also paying tourists who want to go experience mm. space travel. I think that's really going to open the doors wide for people, and uh, some very exciting careers. Some of my students at Columbia, for example, uh, some of them go work for NASA or for the mm. contractors or for the different space agencies around the world, the government-run agencies. Mm. But uh, a lot of them go work for these other companies. For example. Nicole Lewis, this young woman who's uh, our valedictorian in the mm. engineering school at Columbia two years ago, A-plus student in my class, terrific student, um, is working for Virgin Galactic. Mm. Uh, mm. My, my teaching assistant, who just got his PhD a year ago from, uh, from Columbia in mechanical engineering, is at Blue Origin. Mm. And we have other students, a bunch of the students uh, that I've had in my class are out at SpaceX. So this is where they're mm. going. It's not just the government anymore. So it's these private companies, it's entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's, that's where the, the future is, and it's just a question of how much longer we have to wait for that to happen. I, I do think it's gonna happen, I think it's gonna be a kind of a new golden age. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be different than air travel, mm -hmm. obviously it's not gonna be the same sort of thing, because I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who works for, uh, works for Blue Origin about it, and he's like, well, it's different, he thinks it's a different model, he had an interesting point that when we had airplanes, we had people to go visit. You know, like, you know, there were people on different parts of the world yes. before we had airplanes. So like, hey, I want to go, instead of getting on a boat, you yeah. know, and going between the continents, wouldn't it be great to have a, you know, yeah. to, have a, to go visit my relatives in the homeland yeah. and just go down an airplane or for yeah. business? There's really no one waiting for us that we know no. about anywhere, you know, yeah. so. Mars so space, doesn't have those attractions. Right, so it's going to be, it's a little different, you know, yeah. but, um, but certainly, so it's going to be more, I think, for the experience of being in space. But I think going, just going to space is a compelling and enough destination that there's going to be a high demand for it. And hopefully the price is going to come down. Because yeah. right now it's a bit expensive. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit out yeah, but they most of our price ranges, I guess. Yeah, but I think, that, I think those entrepreneurs have that. They don't want it to just be no, the rich. I think, 
I think at first it's going to have to, you know, it's going to be yeah, well, a like price. Yeah, well, like you say, like air travel, like air travel. You exactly. had to be a millionaire. Yeah, just, right. You and had now, a plane. You were a millionaire. Right. Howard Hughes now. Right. You know, it's much more. Right. Yeah. So I think Everybody's that's been on an airplane. exactly right. I think <laughs> that's what's going to, that's what's going to happen. So I think it's a very exciting time <laughs> coming up. And the, and the students now, the young people who are in the aerospace uh, business, uh, there's lots of excitement. And mm. the possibility of going to Mars, I think, mm. is becoming more real because we're not just dependent on NASA or the governments to do this. I think there's some uh, entrepreneurs who are, who are interested in doing that as well. Elon Musk has a plan. Yes. I think it's going to be a joint effort between our countries around the world and, and private industry to, to make it happen. It, it can't mm. happen without that. It's mm. just too hard, too expensive. But I, I think there's hope. I think that you know, 20, 30 years from mm. now, I, I think we, we should, we should be, be on Mars. We should have someone there, I think, yeah. by then. I really do think that's possible. Yeah, Elon Musk has that great quote, doesn't he, where he says, I would like to die on Mars, just not on impact. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it yeah that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I kind of agree with that. I wouldn't want to die on it either way. I'd want to come no, home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. So anyway, bread change Mars, but I'm very aware of the time, and uh, I'm sure we have we have people positioned around the theatre with microphones. So, if you would like to ask a question, take this wonderful opportunity to do that. Could you raise your hand, please, now, and we will see where have we got people. So yes, we've got someone there with um, yes, you, yes, yep, yeah, you. Pick the most awkward person in the middle of a row. <laughs> That's all right. Work as a team to pass that microphone. Good. How loud is this? Oh, hey. Um, what was it when you were going into space, when you were in the aircraft, leaving the, leaving the world behind you? What, what does it feel like, the actual physical pressure? Like, what is that? We see it in movies, but you can't yeah. really understand. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me just start up to the... Uh, to the, the, um, the sometimes I get asked if I was scared, and the launch is pretty scary. Um, and it was scariest for me, thinking about it is worse than actually doing it, right? So it was more, it was somewhat of a, a physical situation, but more of a mental situation because you, you know, it's, you know it's, it's a big day that you're going to try to launch into space. And you know, it always doesn't go well. You know, most of the time it does, right? But every once in a while it doesn't. And, uh, and, I, and when I went out to the launch pad to, for my launch, my very first launch was a night launch. And uh, so we had to get out to the, we were out there around 3 a.m. And uh, it was pitch black, and the shuttle was fueled for the, I'd never been around a, a, a fueled space shuttle before, because they don't let people around the fueled spa, uh, space shuttle. They only fuel it a few hours before launch, because when you fuel it, then you have a bomb there, more or less, and that's not pleasant. So they, they limit the, the risk by not filling the tank with fuel until the very end, and then they clear the area. And, Looking at it, when I got out of the, the van, uh, it was dark. Right? They had lights on the space shuttle. And there was water vapor coming off of it because it was liquid hydrogen and oxygen. So there's like vapor coming up. It looked like smoke, like it was smoking, right? But it was vapor coming off of there. And it was making these hideous noises. You know, because these, these fuel pumps were, but it was like these groans, like, like this. And they were just like, like really? horrible, inhuman noises, right? <laughs> and it, it looked like it was alive. It looked like a beast. It looked like it was a... And, and I looked at that, and I thought to myself, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> right, so, so that was my emotional state. And I actually turned to look if the, if the van, this big Astro van, was still... This guy left. He was like, good luck, you know. 
So the only way to go was into the spaceship. And, they, uh, they had security guards, didn't they? Who yes, they did. That was bef yes. yeah. Before we got on the van, I noticed there was a there was a sense of security. You practice even you practice everything, even the walkout. You know, you did. You, you, we have this this drill we run called uh, uh, terminal. Uh, it's called a terminal control countdown test. T TCD terminal, uh, whatever it is. TCDT <laughs> is the acronym. I think it's terminal countdown test is what it is. So, so you do about a month before, and you that's like a dress rehearsal and you do some emergency egress uh, exercises. Uh, so we, I've been through this experience before in practice, but this was my first time really doing it, and there was a, it, was a whole, it was a completely different sense of things. Getting, getting onto this van, there was, and there was a lot of security. There was, an, a, there was a, heli a military helicopter above us that was gonna look for, I guess, bad people. And, and then there was the SWAT, there was a SWAT team with gigantic weapons standing around, and, and it was, these are like the biggest weapons I've ever seen. And I could swear they were all pointed at me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, this was six months after the 9-11 attack, so you know, the thought was it's enhanced security for 9-11, you know. But I, I really had the sense the way they were, I thought they were looking at me was they were looking to see if I was gonna run for it. And then, you know, threaten me, like, hey, you only have one choice, and that's to get on the van. So, but that's what they were trying to make sure I would get on, is what I thought. Um, but once you once you get in there, so I'll get around to your question eventually. <laughs> so uh, once you get on the spaceship, um, we were kind of hanging around for a while, and uh, they strap you in, and you do some comm checks, and you, you just kind of lay in there. And Jim Newman, uh, my spacewalking buddy, is next to me. And he had, been, he had been in space three other times. And Rick Linehan was, was on the other side. And he had been in space two other times. And uh, so, so those guys, you know, they, they knew what, was, what, it, what, what, what to expect, I guess. And at six seconds, uh, the main engines light. Six seconds ago in the countdown. And so you're laying on your back, and the, and the engines start, the main engines. And the whole, you don't go anywhere yet, though. But you kind of lean forward, right? You feel this like power is about to be unleashed. So this beast is now really awake and starting to, to you know, you're like, whoa. You can feel it underneath you, but you haven't moved yet, right? And you lean forward, and then the whole stack goes, right? But it doesn't, go, it, doesn't, it doesn't take off yet, and then it comes back. And that takes six seconds for that to happen. So it's six seconds, they light, five, four, three, two, one, zero, you're upright again and these solid rockets on the side light. Those are gigantic sticks of dynamite, is what they are. So you can't throttle those. You light them, they're gonna burn until they're done. It's solid fuel. The, the engines, you can throttle. You can turn off the gas if, if it doesn't look good. You have six seconds to do that. But once those solids light, you go. And it's like, it, it's, it's, it is like, wham! And uh, it is, it, it's not like, oh, I wonder if we went anywhere. You're like, sometimes you're not sure, am I moving? You know, I don't really, you know, like, it's obvious you're moving. And uh, before you get to the end of the tower, you're already going 100 miles an hour, and you go from zero to 17,500 miles an hour, which is really fast even in metric. 17,500 miles an hour in eight and a half minutes. Um, so my first flight, when the solids are light, because they're, they're, they're solid, they run a little rough. So there's a lot of shaking and violence going on that they really can't simulate. You can't really simulate anything of that power 
right in a simulator in a centrifuge ride. There's nothing like that. So I was like, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know, I know this is my first time, but it just doesn't seem right. And I'm looking, and these, and these veterans are like, like high-fiving each other and all excited. I'm like, you know, knock it off. What's the matter with you? This can't be right. And they're like, oh, stop it. You know, they're making fun of me for being a chicken. And, and this is going on. Right? And, then, and then the solids go away at, at, uh, at two and a half minutes, right? And then, uh, and then it kind of smooths out a bit after that. And, uh, and then you ride that. I, my, this is my first flight. I was just kind of praying as much as I could. I was like, oh, well, I guess this is OK. I guess I'm still alive. Am I still alive? Yeah, I think so. You know? <laughs> and so I played that game. And then uh, the, last, uh, the last two and a half minutes, you get three Gs on your body. So that means you're weighing about three times your body weight pressing down on your chest. So it's like you have a pile of bricks on your chest, which it's not going to hurt you or kill you, but it's not like something you want to do. You know, it's like, I'm going to go relax for a while. Can you put a couple cinder blocks on my chest? But that's what it's so like, you know, you're like, okay, when's that going to be over? And then that ends at, at, at the eight and a half minutes, the engine's cut. And then it, it gets quiet, and, and you feel as if you're, so you're on your back. That's where you can take these Gs, right? Because um, it's not coming through your head, or else you'd, that'd, be real, that'd be worse. So through the chest is the best we can do. So you're going straight up. So on your back. But then when the engine's cut, you don't have this force on you anymore, and, you, and you're weightless. And so now your brain takes over. So you, when your brain is getting the force input, it knows your position, right? It knows if you're being accelerated. When you're in a car, it can tell you're moving this way or whatever you're being. You're turning or you're walking. Your brain knows what's going on because your vestibular system works on, on gravity. So now that gravity's gone. So now your brain's trying to figure out what's happening, right? So it, when it sees the scene in front of you and it knows you're in a chair, it, it I felt as if I was going like this, but it was, only, it was only my brain making that transformation. You know what I mean? So I was still in the same position, but now the, my brain had thought that I was now upright, okay? So now I feel like I'm sitting in a chair now instead of on my back. And uh, I took my, took my helmet off, because I saw this in Apollo 13, in the movie Apollo. <laughs> so I took my helmet off and I floated it right in front of me and I, and I let go like this. And it just stayed right there, right? And, and, and I, I felt good. I did my tumble. So I did another Tom Hanks thing that he did in the movie. I took my glove off, and I, and I floated, and I let go. And my, and my, glove, my glove is just kind of like doing this sort of thing. I was like, wow. So I'm feeling good. I take off my other glove, and I let go, and I put that one right there like that, you know, and it's just floating. And then I turn my head. I don't see my right glove anymore. Like, where did it go? So that was lesson number one, keep track of your stuff. But, but that, that's what it was like. I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to, f to go through it again, because that first launch was so crazy, I didn't even get to, I, I didn't feel like I got to enjoy it as much, and didn't think as much. And, and um, so I wanted to go again for that reason, and because of the way those guys were making fun of me, um, I wanted to go back again so I could make fun of a new guy. Because <laughs> I knew I, you know, and that's what I did, and I made sure my friend Drew Foistler was next to me on my second launch, and I taunted him the entire time <laughs> on the way up to orbit. And I also, I also like, paid attention a little more, right? And the, the way I would describe it as far as like, the, the feeling of it was uh, I felt like some monster had grabbed me, some like, super science fiction monster had grabbed me and was taking me away from home. That's what I felt like. And there was nothing I could say about it. You know, this thing was just grabbing me by the chest. 
and hurling me away. And then I had this sense right at about, I would say at about two minutes into the launch, um, I had a feeling of leaving. I really, I, I just, there was, I did, like I was really leaving home for the first time. I was leaving home. Not like I was just going on a trip from, like I came here from the States and we're gonna go back or wherever. <laughs> but I really was leaving home. I had that sense of leaving home. So that's what it was like for me. It's, it's a, you know, a bit of a physical experience, but for me it was more of a, I guess more of an emotional experience of, of going through that, that, uh, that whole experience. Um, can we, oh, uh, questions, have we got any, any of our younger, uh, oh, so have we got microphones up at the back, actually, or are you out of lock up there? We have got one, brilliant. Um, have we got any younger members of the audience who want to ask a question up there? Have we got someone? Oh, one over there, yeah. Oh, right the other side, I'm, I'm really picking these very well. Um, it's a sort of ninja challenge for the person with the microphone. <laughs> Here, here. Go on here, it's there. Okay, cool. Um, so, you were saying that you had like a feel of heights, you had a, like, you had a feel of water, and you had a feel of everything basically which you had to encounter <laughs> to be a national. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good summary. <laughs> but what, like, apart from just being an astronaut and being like one in a million people, did you have anything else which you thought like, yeah, I want to become an astronaut? What oh, motivated more, what, what motivated, motivated you? Me? Um, yeah, so what, what, it wasn't just that I wanted to be one for the heck of it. I, I think the, the things that, that, I, that, that I wanted to do, um, I, when my dream got rekindled with, uh, with the right stuff, when I saw that movie, The Right Stuff, there were two things that hit home with me in that movie. And one was, the, of John, they, this, they depict John Glenn's orbital flight. Mm. And they show him, by the way, where's that, did that question come from up there? Yeah. Yeah, you have my admiration for being up there, by the way. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Um, but the view, of, the view of John Glenn's, um, the view out of John Glenn's window, the way they depicted mm. that, and him looking through the window and viewing the Earth, I, I wanted to see what that was like. And then the other part that I liked about the movie that hit me was the camaraderie between the astronauts, the, the teamwork. Mm -hmm. And so those were, to me, those were the two best things about being an astronaut, getting the experience of seeing what it's like up in space, but also the camaraderie between that crew. I wanted to be part of an organization like that. And more than, more than I really could explain, I wanted to be one of, one of those people. I wanted to have that sense of teamwork like they had that camaraderie, and I wanted to, to experience it, you know, being up there. But what, what happened is I got to learn more and more about it. I realized that, that it was the perfect job for me, because not only did it have those attributes, but it was things like solving hard problems, but being on the front line of it. So getting a chance to design spacewalks or space tools, um, working in the control center. Everything that we did was to help people get to space. And it was real. You know, it wasn't just thinking about it in a classroom or thinking about it even at a company. Um, you were really doing it. And um, to be a part of that, to be a part of every one of the space missions in some way, 
whether it was you supporting a family or you were helping design a spacewalk or you were going to check email for your buddy or whatever you were going to do, um, the, the training and the experience of going through that, that's, that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted that job. I didn't want just the experience of going to space. Because there was some opportunities. I, I, I wasn't eligible. They, they, they dried up. But at one point, there was what they called a payload specialist, where some people would go just for one mm -hmm. flight. They would come to do the flight, and then they would go back to whatever their job was. And I didn't want that. I wanted to be part of the office more, almost more than I wanted to fly in space. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be involved with figuring out ways to get people to space of what kind of systems we needed, um, what, what, what kind of techniques we were going to use, what tools we needed. And that's where I wanted to devote my, my life and, and to, to be part of that team full time. That's, that's, really, that's really what motivated me as I got to know more and more about it. So it started off just with the idea that I wanted to see what the Earth looked like from space and I wanted to hang around a bunch of cool people. But then it grew into something where I really felt like it was the perfect job for me um, and the best way that I could contribute to what I thought was the most important thing going on in my lifetime, which was, which was the exploration of space. And I, I, I wanted to be a part of that so badly on the front line that that's what my motivation was. Anything short of that would have been, would have been second, a second choice. And it was hard to, to, for me to admit that to myself because I knew that to get that job would be near impossible. So I knew it was the perfect job for me, the thing I wanted more than anything to do, but I also knew it was probably the hardest job in the world to get. So, but I gave it a shot mm. and, and wasn't going to give up. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> we have time for one or two more questions. Uh, oh, someone in the middle there. That handy person with your hand up. What was your favorite part or site of your explorations? The perfect, my, my favorite site? Is it? Is that what? Sorry, so your, his favorite My favorite site part? From favorite part what? or your site. Okay, excellent. Oh. Um, thank you for the question. And uh, yes, yeah, so for me, um, the, my, my, my favorite part was, was the spacewalks. It was, it was a lot of hard work and uh, getting ready for them. Um, uh, but it was just extraordinary to, um, to step out of the, of the space shuttle um, and to go out there in my own spacesuit was, was an amazing, to go out there in, in the expanse of space. So when you launch in your rocket ship, you know, you're inside the space shuttle and you get to space and you have these magnificent views out the window, but the sh shuttle itself kind of seems like a simulator almost. But the views is where you notice the difference. And, that, and you're floating around. That's another difference. <laughs> but uh, but the, the view out the window, still the, the light is somewhat filtered through the window as it comes to you, right? The light of the sun or the stars. And you're working with regular clothes. And you're kind of in this cocoon of the, of the spacecraft. But when you, when you step out in there, you're kind of like stepping out into the abyss. Now there's no walls around you. And you're wearing a, a space suit. And everything kind of opens up. You're not looking through the framed window scene. And where we fly on the, where, we, where I got to fly on Hubble, it's, it's, high, it's the highest the shuttle could go. They wanted to get the telescope as far away from the planet as possible. So we're about 100 miles higher than the space station. So we can see the curve from that altitude. So as I, as I, as I got out in my spacewalk, I, I noticed a couple things in my first spacewalk. Once, First, it was really, really bright, like the, bright, the brightness of the sun. It, it was more than bright. It was like pure light. 
it was a, everything was illuminated in its purest form. That this is the way you're supposed to see things. I wish I could have taken the, the eye exam under these conditions. <laughs> was, everything, just seemed, everything just seemed clear and true. Everything, the, the colors on my, the flag on my arm, you know, the labeling around the space shuttle, everything was just clear. And when you get into the darkness, all that light goes away. It's like the absence of light. It's the darkest dark. It's like all the light is now gone. The sun is no longer there. It's the darkest dark. And you use your helmet lights and some of the lights on the shuttle to, to, get, to, to get around and to, to do your work. And then the, the, the view of the, of the planet, which I try to describe in the book, so my, the sight that I'll give you from the spacewalk, when I really had a chance to, to look, um, the, there's no words to describe how beautiful our planet is. They just don't exist, and, and I'm not smart enough to invent them. So, uh, so I just I try to explain in the book how I, how I felt about it, and I'll, I'll share one of these with you. Is, is when, I, when I really, really just kind of s just looked without, without really thinking, I guess, and just let, let, let my emotions sort of take over of what was happening. It's so beautiful. Just, just looking at our planet, it's just so beautiful. I thought to myself, and, and I thought, you know, this must be the view from heaven. How could, how could anything be greater than this? If you were in heaven and you were looking down on our planet, this is, this is how we must be seen from heaven. And then, it was, and then another thought went through my mind right after that. It was, and the thought was, no, 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 that's not it. It's more beautiful than that. This is what heaven must look like. And I, I felt at that moment that I was looking into heaven, that I was looking into a paradise. And I don't see how anything could be more beautiful than our planet. I don't, I don't, I don't know what heaven is like, but I can't imagine that it's any more beautiful than what the place we live in now. And that's what it, that's what it seemed like to me, the ultimate paradise. The ultimate beauty is our planet. So for me, that was my, that was my favorite site uh, during my spacewalks. Good answer for your sure. question there. <laughs> <laughs> um, have we got, I don't know, someone, have we got time for one more question? Or, yeah, one more. Someone over there, someone over there, someone, yes. There's a, oh, the, the, the beam, the beaming smile that accompanied the real life. On YouTube, um, I watched people fixing the hobble, mm -hmm. and what happen? And what happens if a parts and pieces of the hobble fly away? <laughs> <laughs> Do you got spares? <laughs> No, believe it or not, they don't give us any spares. And uh, yeah, so uh, my, on my first mission, I was really scared of losing. I was always scared of losing something. I didn't want, I didn't want to lose anything. And um, we took a lot of pride in all of our servicing missions on Hubble that we didn't lose anything. But my first flight, I was very challenged. I had to rotate a solar array into, into position. And it, was, it weighed about 600 pounds on the Earth. It was weightless in space, but it was, um, it was, uh, it had still had mass to it, so it could build up momentum and get away from us. So I was very concerned on my first flight of of losing something big like the solar array, 
You know, and, that was, and if I lost it, I knew there was no extras, and I'd be like, ooh, I wonder if they're going to charge me for that. You know? <laughs> but I was really careful, and that went OK. You know, nothing, nothing happened. And my second space flight, again, I was, I was, I was, it was a different, I wasn't on the robot arm. When I did that, my, my first flight, I spent most of my time on the robot arm. My second flight, I didn't spend any time on the robot arm. I was moving around with my hands the whole time. And, uh, and I didn't, again, didn't want to lose anything. But I was moving around. I didn't have, on the robot arm, you have like a stanchion you can use, and you can leave a lot of your tools there. I had to carry everything on me that I was using. And I always put uh, two hooks on everything I was carrying, because I didn't want one hook to come undone. And anyway, I kind of got out of sequence. And uh, there was a cable that I was supposed to install on uh, one of these, one of our instruments. It was an instrument that had a power supply failure called the Advanced Camera for Surveys. We had two instruments that had power supply failures. We had to replace the power supplies. But on one of them, the Advanced Camera for Surveys, I wasn't doing the repair, but I was going to help. And my helpful task the day before was I had access to a, an area of that instrument to run a power cable that was going to help repower this instrument from, from a piece of equipment in the Hubble to this instrument itself. And uh, it was a, a power harness that was designed specifically for this. And without it, we couldn't repower that instrument, right? And so I was going to go right from the, I only used one hook on this thing because I was only going with it a few feet. I was going to go into this carrier and, 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 and put a hook on it and then go into the telescope and hook it up. But as I'm grabbing this thing and I just put the one hook around it, they say, Mike, don't go into the telescope yet. Go around to the back of the shuttle. Isn't that how they said it? But more or less, the instructions were to go around to the back of the shuttle and get the extra gyroscope, because we were having trouble with one of the gyroscopes. We had a spare. We did have a spare gyroscope in the back. So I go to the back of the shuttle. I'm doing a lot of translating all over the place. Again, this, so this cable's like going like this on the side now, right? Like, ah, oh, it's OK with the one hook. I'll be all right. So I go around, and I get the, because I need the other hook now for this, the extra hook that I had I needed for this gyroscope. And I do, I'm really worried about this gyroscope, right? That's big. This is just a cable, you know? So I just get this, I get the gyroscope, this very expensive piece of equipment, and I, you know, move it around, and I, and I hand it off to my buddy. And I'm now standing on the, I'm in, right on the edge of the telescope, and uh, out of the corner of my eye, and the telescope doors are open, okay? And a lot of sensitive equipment is right in front of them that we're not supposed to touch, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm waiting there, and out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, oh, what's that? I see the cable going like this that I had, right? And... Uh, I don't just see a cable, I see the future of astronomy going, <laughs> going like this. And uh, the thought that went through my mind was, that's the only one we have. That's what I thought, right? It's not like I can get another one of these. That's the only one I have. And luckily, this is where my training actually helped me. I knew from all my practice that I did have a waist tether uh, hooked up to the telescope. And I knew exactly that, that that waist tether was about two and a half, three feet long. I knew how far the star tracker that was really uh, um, delicate was above me, right? And I knew that I had enough, I could still grab that cable without knocking into the star tracker and not launch myself into the telescope and destroy it. <laughs> and I, I, did, I did a leap and I grabbed that thing and it pulled back on my, on my, on my tether. And I grabbed it, I, I didn't lose it, right? And no one said anything to me. <laughs> Not a word, you know. Inside, my buddy John Grunsfeld, I think, was, was so shocked that he was like, Matt. And before he could say anything, I was already back, and so he just shut up. <laughs> and I was like, you know, geez, you know, that was pretty sporty, you know, things flying away. No one said a word. 
Right? No one had my helmet camera going, his camera views watching everything. No one said anything. I think, so I, I knew, we just went on and it was it. Oh, yeah, fine. So we get back home and we have our debrief and we have a, a space walking debrief and no one says anything. And then Tomas Gonzalez Torres, who is our uh, lead uh, spacewalk trainer, flight controller, comes up to me and he goes, Mass, come over here. What's going on with the power harness? And he said, what the hell? And I said, well, I told him what happened. He goes, he goes yeah, he goes, I couldn't. Because he saw it happen, but he didn't say anything. But that was the closest I came to losing, to losing something. But, but luckily, I was able to snatch it back. So anyway. Is that it? Yeah, there you go. That's it. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah. Oh, we should ask about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mike is going to be signing books. Yeah, so, can but, I say hi? Yeah, Grab right, but, if, if you uh, but also you can, if you want to follow Mike's continuing adventures, um, his social media is up here. There is a slight mistake. He is astro underscore Mike. Um, otherwise, some poor guy who's probably, I don't know, an astronomer or something, is going to be like, where are all these questions coming from? So, yes, astro underscore Mike, if you want to follow Mike on Twitter. And you can meet him outside uh, very, very shortly with um, a stack of books. Yes. Good. Thank, thank you very much. And thank you. Thank, thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode and you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. Thanks.